It's not until like you get some kind of boost up that you're out of the hole that you've just sort of dug for yourself. And you're like, wow, it's light out here. And then you can look down and say, I was there. But when you're there, you're just there. So, you know, there has to be something that kind of gets somebody. And I think a lot of that is fear. And for me, when you realized that fear is just an emotion that is created, it really is. I mean, I always like to say it's false evidence appearing real. But, you know, you're afraid of what may happen. So for me, I was like, well, it already happened. And I couldn't control it. And I can't control anything else that's ever going to happen in this life. But I can control myself. And I can make a decision on how I'm going to handle this and who I'm going to be afterwards. So I think not having fear about what's going to happen allows you as an entrepreneur to throw your idea out there. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Jennifer Gilbert, welcome to Impact. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have so many things that we are going to uncover on this conversation uh, today. And if people were sort of delving into your bio and like perusing what we were going to uh, get into and talk about today, I know what's going to happen is we're going to have a variety of surprises and things that they did not see coming, which frankly are the tenants of a really incredible event. Uh, and let's let's mm-hmm. start there because this is sort of this is sort of a rallying point uh, in terms of our conversation conversation and uh, your career, you build events and this is your background. I'd love for you to start off by just sharing with my audience a little bit about you, some of the highlights of your career, how you got started with Save the Date, and then we're going to delve in from there. Okay. So, God, I feel like I've been doing this forever, except that the main part of our business has created tentacles, which go into other businesses, which is always what you want to grow organically. But I was um, an event planner in New York City when I started, and I was working for a wedding planning company. And I was hired to cultivate the corporate market. So way back when, and it's frightening to say before the internet and a Google poll, I was given literally a phone book and was like, go at it. So I had to figure out how to sell, how to cold call, how to plan events in New York City and New York City all at once because I had just you know moved back from London. And what I realized pretty quickly from building this corporate market was that the exact people that I wanted to be my clients didn't really need me in a way. Like they were like, we would love to hire you, but that's my job. And this was the 90s. There was a recession. And so I kept hearing that over and over. And I would work our fee in or I would save the money or I would go to the CEO and say, you know, you're paying your admin overtime. I can be less. I'll upgrade your bar. And at the same time, all of these venues were saying, Jennifer, we're dying. You know, we don't have time. So can you bring us some clients? We'll give them an extra hour. We'll give them open bar. And there was no place. There was no marketplace. There was nowhere for these two populations to find each other. So you had all these people that needed to plan events, but didn't need me. And you had all these venues that needed the clients. So I thought, wait a minute, my industry is going about this all wrong. What if I flipped the business model? And what if I went to corporations 
And I said, well, you don't have to pay me. I'm supported by my vendors, which was a brand new thought. I know now this is a very common business model. But before, when there was no advertising and there was no Google, people couldn't find each other. And so when I would ask my corporate clients every day, you know, what part of your day is the most frustrating or what part of your job, they would say finding a new location. So they were going back to the same place because they didn't have time or energy to go and look at spaces. So I took that very specific niche and I created a new business model. So that's how we started. And by, you know, 28, I went Entrepreneur of the Year, sponsored by Ernst Young. And then I went to MIT for a business fellowship and I rolled out my company in five cities. And, you know, we've done events from everybody from Bill Gates and Google and Oprah Winfrey to like, you know, my friend's husband's 40th birthday party that just needs a venue. So we've gone from, you know, a consulting business where we plan full, huge events to outsource or just, you know, finding a DJ for a party. So it was a very novel idea back then. I love how it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just an event planner in New York, but really it's like I have an entire empire uh, that I built just by consistently solving one problem after another. And then you had this little foray uh, on the Real Housewives of New York. Can we just, can we just please talk about that for one quick second? How did that happen? I forget. So, you know, Bravo came to me before there was the Real Housewives and they were I don't know how they got my name, but they were doing a series called The Real Working Women of New York City. And I thought, well, all right, that's what I am. You know, and there was two very prominent celebrities that are friends of mine and clients of mine that were also doing it. And I won't say their names, but so they came and they did a video and then they called back and said, we love you. We're just tweaking the name a little bit. And I said, oh, really? To what? And at first it was called Millionaire Moms. I was like, okay, I'm out. You know, that was, that was the end of that. And then it morphed into the Real Housewives. So I never really thought about it again. And after season two, they were recasting. And it was right after, you know, the market had sort of crashed in America and Bear Stearns was out and a lot of other businesses were out. So I needed to reinvent myself. And a friend of mine, like, threw my name into the you should get in touch with. And they had remembered me. So I never thought I was going to be on the show, ever. I mean, I thought I'm everything they don't want, but, you know, it's a casting agent and I'll be on film and maybe they'll do an event show. So, of course, you know, I got chosen and it was really a risky, you know, situation for me. But I thought, well, you know, I need a little heft in my business and while I can't control what happens and how they edit, I can control what I say. And actually, I went on as me. You know, I wasn't a housewife yet. I was just a character. And um, I planned events on the show, and it was a crazy experience. I mean, I could write a whole book about what that was like. But it was really fun, and I, I actually still have friendships with some of the ladies that were on the show. And, you know, when I look back, I think, okay, reality show, check, you know, bucket list. <laughs> it was crazy. It was, a, it was like a really crazy time to walk down the street and people would like scream my name because it was just the beginning of the explosion of the housewives. So it was before a lot of other ones had um, opened. And how much of that was like was real when you looked at the final final product versus like what you went in and I know you're like I can control what I can say was was that a naive sentiment once you walked 
in there or were you really able to have some brand control? No, I really did have a lot of control over my self and what happened because I just, you know, I went in as me. So when things were blowing up, I just sort of politely sat on the other side and probably wasn't great for my reality TV, you know, future because they want you to like get right in there. But I was like, no, 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 <laughs> you know, I'm staying out of it. So it really helped for my business and um, just to kind of get my name out there. And it was, you know, it was fun. I had it, Bravo was great to me. I had no issues. And, you know, it was not, it was very early in the season, meaning season three, but it was real. I mean, the dramas that were going on were not fabricated. You know, they were actually happening on set and in real life. So, you know, maybe things have gotten a little fantastical as it went on, but, you know, it was, it was real drama when I was there. I think one of the things that happens with reality TV is that we as viewers tend to plug holes with our own stories and assumptions related to the individuals who are on these shows. And I know simultaneous to this experience and behind the scenes of your own business, so many of the decisions that put you on any of these respective pathways were actually informed by a story not many people knew, a whole side of you that no one could have anticipated by watching what was happening on yeah. camera and with TV. And if you're comfortable, I would love to delve into that story a little sure. bit, because I think for a lot of us, we have traumatic experiences in the past. And it is that trauma that defines the story and creates this gap between what we would really love to put into the world and what we feel like we're capable of doing. And I've heard your story before and what it did for me was one immediately broke through. We just reminded me we can never make assumptions about individuals that we are watching and witnessing or sitting across from. But number two, incredibly triumphant things can come out of the face of trauma. And I'd love for you to share pe with people a little bit more about your story and the background that informed you starting your business and some of the subsequent decisions from there. Sure. And I mean, what's kind of interesting is the whole time I was on the show, I never said a word. So most people would use that platform to talk about themselves in a way that promotes themselves. And I never said a word on the show. And after I was off the show, I wrote a memoir. And so everybody was saying like, why don't you talk about this on the show? And I said, it wasn't the place for it. You know, it was very private and it wasn't for that purpose. So um, I was ready kind of afterwards. But so uh, when I was 22, and this was, you know, a year after college, I had moved back from London because I just, you know, graduated and I went to go work in London. And to make a very long, painful story shorter, unbeknownst to me, I took the train from my parents' house who was in the suburbs to New York City. And then I took the subway to my girlfriend's house to go visit her because I'd been away for a year. And... Um, I was followed off the subway by a man who followed me down the streets and into my friend's apartment building and, and actually into her hallway. And I, I had no idea. And it was, you know, bright sunshine like it is right now. It was five o'clock, you know, in May. And, you know, I kind of heard a noise and I turned and I saw someone coming down the hallway. And it's incredible because... There's lots of things in my life I don't remember, but I remember every single second of, of these minutes, you know, and I, I, 
I, I got some weird feeling when I looked at him, but also, you know, my instincts kicked in and I thought, well, there's only two apartments on this hallway, one in front of me and one behind me. And he was casing the wall. So his body was up. He was going to bump right into me. And I thought, this is strange. And I can't explain, but I had this really weird feeling. And, you know, sort of the next thing I know, I'm looking and I'm ringing the doorbell for my friend to come open up the door. And, you know, I just feel like, boom, in my head about five times really, really quickly. And I remember I just, you know, was like, <gasps> And I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm in New York City for the first time and I'm getting mugged. Like, all those stories are true. Because I didn't grow up in New York. I grew up in... So I took my bag and I threw it as far down the hallway as I could, thinking, okay, take it. Anyway, it was not my purse that he was interested in. And a few minutes later, I was on the ground and, you know, this man was on top of me. And I f saw his fist coming towards me and... Then I felt something kind of in my leg and I had realized that the whole time that he was hitting me, he was actually stabbing me. And um, he then followed me into my friend's apartment because when she opened the door, she opened the door and realized like I was out there and some man was on top of me. And she went back to go tell her five roommates and her voice didn't come out. She was just completely in shock and she couldn't speak. And then she realized, she must have realized that she left me out there and I must have seen her because when she came back and opened the door, I just ran right into her apartment and I heard her screaming like, what do you want from us? And I turned around and he's in the apartment coming after me again. And I will spare the gory details of the next few minutes, but suffice to say, I absolutely thought I was dead. I was like, this man is going to kill me. I had nowhere to go. I, you know, he had me up against like a sofa and I fought. I mean, I fought, I kicked, I screamed. I was present the entire time. And all I thought about was like this bottomless force of survival. And, you know, you never know in that situation. And while I didn't see that there were five women in the apartment when he followed me in, he did. So he knew he had a certain amount of time before he was going to get caught. And so he just, you know, ran out the door and I was sort of just, you know, left there. And this was a this was a big story in New York back then. So there were three women. He was a paroled murderer. But it was my trial actually three years later that put him away for 27 years. And he's, he's actually still in jail. That was a long time ago. How did you move from yeah. a trauma like that back into momentum of life, let alone building your businesses? What was the gap between that moment and functionality again? I mean, I think, you know, shock sets in. And for a while afterwards, I was like, wait, what happened? Like, did this just actually happen? I mean, I looked like a mummy. I could barely move. My face was broken and, you know, my body was not in good shape. I had, you know, over 37 stab wounds and some of them were quite large. And I just thought, you know, I always look back and I, I say that was the day I lost my joy. And I was 22 years old and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just dead. Like, it doesn't matter if I'm breathing. My soul is gone. And after a few months in my parents' house, it was just really difficult because we were all sort of, it's interesting how people relate to trauma. And, you know, in my house, it was sort of like, a, we can't believe what almost happened, but it didn't. So like, let's just not talk about it. And so for me, I thought I was going crazy because we weren't talking about this big elephant in the room. 
And so I just kind of needed to run away. So I packed up my car after a couple months and I just moved to Boston where I knew nobody, had no idea what I was doing and went there. Like it was such a random thing to do. And I remember I went to like Harvard Square or something and I picked off like roommate needed. You know, I left my, the home of my parents and my safety and I went to a new city to live in a house with a bunch of strangers. I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me now, but back then it's just the way it worked. And I was there for a couple of months. And honestly, I don't remember the name of the street. I don't remember a lot about my time there. I I think I volunteered or I worked, but I don't really recall. But I do remember one day in my room looking out the window and everyone's going somewhere. You know, they're going to work, they're going to school, they're going to their job. And I'm lying in this bed, in this bedroom of a house on a street where I don't even know. And I thought, wow, this is not my fabulous life. Like I thought I was going to take New York by storm. You know, back then I was going to wear like a Donna Karen onesie and a big suit and be in Wall Street and go into business. And here I was laying in a bed trying to figure out whether my heart was still beating. And it was just that second, I I don't know, but I was like, you know what? You picked the wrong girl. And I just said to myself, get up. This is not your life. And if you allow this situation and this person to derail your dreams and your future and what you wanted, then he may as well have killed you. So get up. And I just packed up my bags and I, you know, the mind is an amazing thing. It kind of only lets you deal with what you can when you're ready. And I just packed up all of the trauma and all of the feelings. And I put it in this like imaginary suitcase and I walked down the hall in my mind and left it, you know, in Boston, in this house, in this room. And I was like, I'm not that person anymore. She's gone, but this new person is here and I am going to create this fabulous life for myself. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew it was not going to be sitting on that bed. So, you know, I moved back to New York and I kept thinking, well, you know, life is about the moment. And I almost wasn't here. So I felt like I needed to be around people celebrating and being happy because I never thought I was going to have it again. So it wasn't like a fraud, but I just thought my life will be about other people's happiness and joy. And that will just have to be enough. So I thought, okay, well, who has to celebrate things? And I thought, well, weddings, you know, that's happy. People are celebrating, they're in love. So I started to try to figure out, you know, where do I do this? Because now there's like certificates in event planning, you know, you can go to school for it, which cracks me up. But back (laughs) then, I mean, you know, it was basically like work for a company sorry, work for a company and be in their conference planning department or, you know, find this little teeny event planning company where I was the third person. And so I just thought, this is what I'm going to do. And I put my whole energy into it. And as I started loving my business and creating it, and remember, I was really, I was really hired to cultivate a corporate market. So I was selling and cold calling and coming up with this idea. And I, you know, funny because I'm a businesswoman. So I see holes in things, which is why I'm great at my job because for an event, you have to see every hole before it happens so that you can think about a solution for it. But I saw the hole in my industry and I thought there is a better way of doing business. So while I quickly say I'm an event planner, it's not really what I created and it's not really how we started. 
So I, you know, I flipped the business model and then I just, you know, kind of worked harder than everyone else. But my business was my passion. It still is. It's still like, you know, I have three children, but it was my first child. I get that. And, and, you know, it saved my life. And because I loved it and I was so plugged into my events and my soul, I found the business in it. So, which is something I always did, but it just happened to like commingle. Did you get your joy back? I did. You know, it was like through osmosis kind of. I never thought it, but, you know, eventually I kept thinking, huh, like I'm okay. I can have this too. I'm worth it and I'm worthy because a lot of stuff happens when you feel like you're, like I never talked about it for 20 years. I never talked about it until my book came out. And um, I felt shame, which is so bizarre because what did I do? I did nothing. You know, I was walking down the street. But I think, you know, for women, just feeling like you're picked for Mm -hmm. something out of your control. I mean, I'm sure for men as well, but I'm a woman, so I only know from my vantage point. But I felt like victim and my name in the same sentence was like, yuck. You know, I just... I just didn't want anything to do with it. And I didn't think like, oh, I'm a survivor. I just felt like, I don't ever want to talk about that. That's not- It was still in the imaginary, it didn't happen suitcase. Mm -hmm. And I felt shame around it. And I, I didn't feel like, oh, look what I did from it. I just thought, well, this was the only way I knew how to move through it. And, you know, really writing my book and putting everything down on paper and talking about it even when it was just like in note form, was really opening up all these past, you know, aches and pains and trauma and how we deal with things. So it really changed a lot in my life and my business and my book and everything else. What do you think the relationship is between entrepreneurship and trauma? And is there a reproducible relationship between the two? Like, I really feel like entrepreneurship is a catalyst for all sorts of areas in in our lives. But I'm curious from your perspective, its unique role in helping to heal a trauma. Well, I think about my relationship with fear because that's kind of where it comes from. You know, I could have moved to wherever and lived in a basement for the rest of my life and people would have been like, I totally understand, you know, but I shows. I just said, you know, I could not control one bit of what happened to me. As much as I looked back and thought, did I wear something? Did I look at him? Did I not look at him? Like what, what happened? There was nothing I could do. And I think sometimes feeling very out of control of your life is extremely fearful and people get stuck. And fear is a very motivating force to do or not do. And, you know, I think And I talk about this a lot about trauma and about, you know, adversity, but when you're in it, you're just in it. Mm -hmm. And when people say, oh, well, it happens for a reason or you'll get, when you're in it, you're in it, you know, and it's not until like you get some kind of boost up that you're out of the hole that you've just sort of dug for yourself. And you're like, wow, it's light out here. And then you can look down and say, I was there. But when you're there, you're just there. So you know, there has to be something that kind of gets somebody. And I think a lot of that is fear. And for me, when you realize that fear is just an emotion that is created, it really is. I mean, I always like to say it's false evidence appearing real. But, you know, you're afraid of what may happen. 
So for me, I was like, well, it already happened and I couldn't control it. And I can't control anything else that's ever going to happen in this life, but I can control myself and I can make a decision on how I'm going to handle this and who I'm going to be afterwards. So I think not having fear about what's going to happen allows you as an entrepreneur to throw your idea out there or to say, I'm going to try it because what's the worst that can happen? It won't happen. Okay, well, so what? I'll try something else. So I think the trauma and getting over the trauma helps with sort of this, why not? And we're here now. And if, you know, if not me, who kind of attitude. And I think that there is probably a link, you know, and trauma can be anything. I mean, trauma can be having any kind of impediment. Trauma can be growing up without a parent. It can be you know, learning disability when you were little, it can be anything, whatever, you know, I mean, people always say, well, I went through something, but it's not as bad as yours. You know, and I always say, there is no contest when it comes to how somebody feels about a situation. Like we're all just in our own stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not a worse or better. It's just a relative. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate you saying that because I think I'm very interested in how people opt out in life. And so one of the ways they opt out is they hear about someone else's trauma and they're like, well, I was really inspired, but now I realize my trauma is like hardly anything compared to, to Jen's trauma. And so we totally invalidate and we go back to being, uh, back to being stuck. And I I just want to call out that mindset for anyone who's maybe traveled there as you're sharing your story, that this truly trauma, the neurochemistry of trauma like you can get a paper cut at the wrong emotional point and you're going to elicit the same trauma pathways regardless of the actual thing that that triggered that neurochemistry. And so I, I feel like the take-home piece here is when you heal that trauma, it can be this powerful force and catalyst for impact in the world. Absolutely. And, you know, I always say, like, just because you've survived one thing, it doesn't mean your name is picked out of the never bad can happen to you pile. I mean, you know, I had to go through <laughs> infertility. Like, I lost a pregnancy very at six months. Like, I have a child with alopecia who's completely bald. I mean, the hits keep on coming in life. And so, you know, there's a lot And each time you're in something, and it could be a heartbreak. I mean, to me, Mm -hmm. that's the most traumatizing, you know, when your heart feels broken. But it's just having to kind of center yourself and say, what are my options? Because people ask me all the time, Jen, I don't, I mean, you know, with COVID, I'm an event planner. I mean, people say, how do you get up? How do you keep going? And how do you keep like putting out good energy in the world? And I you know, I mean, I have plenty of pity parties. Like I put my head on the, you know, on the floor sometimes and I'm like, I just can't do it for one more second. But then I stop and I'm like, what is the alternative? Mm-hmm. Because if you're not in it in your life, then it's just another day that goes by. And w- what are we living for? And what are we doing? And it doesn't have to be to be an entrepreneur. Okay. But it could be to like hug your kids or to do your job a little bit better or to read the book that's been sitting next to your nightstand. I mean, there's always a, you know, why not? And I think it's a paradigm shift and it's hard. It is a paradigm shift, but something happened when you said, you know, the hits keep coming. The word I wrote down was relief. And the reason I wrote the word relief down is because I know so many entrepreneurs who say to me, Megan, I don't want to do this because 
I could fail or this could happen or what if people, I'm like, all of those things could happen because it's a Tuesday tomorrow. And so once, right, like once you acknowledge, listen, you're going to fail again and you're going to feel like you're running out of money and you're going to feel like you don't have all the security in the world or something, you know, something could happen to your kids. And knowing that all these things could happen should be a bit of a relief to the release of this one business entity. Because in the grand scheme of things, it's like the least important, like it contextualizes Mm -hmm. the breadth of possibilities. And you realize, I can't let this one thing hold me back. Like stuff can happen regardless. Always. And I, I think, you know, there's so many ifs out there. And so if all we do is ruminate about the if that can go wrong, then we spend their life there. But mm-hmm. knowing that you can't control it and you might as well be happy until that thing happens, you know, I mean, start out your business saying, I'm going to like kill it. If something happens and you don't, then you don't. But around, around the root, you are happy. And that energy of happy helps to create better things. And perhaps you won't ever fail because you're in the right mindset of like, yes, I can. And it really is a a shift because once Mm -hmm. you realize all I can do is control myself when I wake up or control my emotions about a situation, then you take back the power in your life. And so fear doesn't become this huge thing that is, you know, looming out there. And in the breadth of risks, one of the, I think, well, certainly the riskiest thing I've ever done as a compartmentalized package in my career was decide to run an event. Like I remember the day where my business was growing, but I'm like not nearly at the trajectory that I wanted it to. And I ran some events back at university for kids. And I was like, we're going to run a, we're going to run a live event. Like we're going to, we are going to interrupt the pattern of how we've always done it. And I walked into this event space and I've shared the story in the podcast before. And I found the most beautiful event space in Toronto and it was brand new and it had like 40 foot windows that overlooked the city. And I was like, this is where we're going to host it. And I walked in and she said, well, the dates you want are actually weirdly available. And I was like, great, it's a sign. And she's like, so if you want, you can put a deposit on the space today. And I was like, yes, I totally want to do that. And she's like, great. So I will need a $50,000 deposit today. And then, and I was like, I just need a minute. And I had to go like clear every like bit of credit off of all of the places that I came back. And I was like, here you go. And it was this do or die moment. Like it really, it really, that wasn't, it's not like that's a small amount of money to me. That was a very large amount of money. And there was no, there was like Zippo guarantee this all fell on me, but it was also most, one of the most powerful moments in my career. Cause I was like, I'm going to take complete ownership of all of these, all of these pieces. And so, um, one of the things that I took comfort, the event went fine and it was like a total shift and change in, in trajectory in my career. But one of the things I took like great solace in once I had made that deposit and in subsequent events we had run was just hearing the stories of other individuals who had run events and like some of the catastrophic things that happened behind the scenes that, Uh, we kind of like everyone recovered from, but it just made, it just actually made me smile. It took the pressure off. It was like, okay, mm-hmm. if they can figure it out, I can figure it out. So, you know, I know we touched on some like really deep pieces and I'm also wondering, can you just share some of those like absurd stories of oh things God. that have happened at events, like wild stuff where you're like, um, this took place in the corner of the room and this is how we fixed it. Completely. I mean, I wrote a book, my memoir was called, I never promised you a goodie bag because it has like many, many meetings, but you know, it was really about after what happened to me, you know, your presence 
not the present on the way out because everyone's like killing each other for like a plastic whistle. I'm like, we just spent a year planning this event. But so in the book, I really talk about what was going on, the undercurrent of my real life that we were talking about and all of these crazy events and what was going wrong there and the lessons that I had learned. I mean, there were so many, but I would just say one of them was an event that we did with a tent and it was in, it was not in America and we built a tent and it was a really like a client event, five-star type of roll in. People were flying in from all over the world. And I don't know what happened with the tent that day, but when they put it together, something was not connected properly because the wind was shifting and we look up and I see the top of one of the entire walls flapping like it was loose. And that wall was about to blow out of the tent, like one whole side of the tent that was. So I had everybody that was free literally stand up against the wall to hold it from blowing away for the last hour of an event. I mean, <laughs> literally. And like the second everybody walked out to go back into that lodge, we walked away and it fell right over. I mean, it was just one of those moments where I was like, it's gonna fall, what are we gonna do? Get more people. I mean, you know, you just have to like always, always think. I mean, you know, you have a beautiful wedding. There's no air conditioning. It doesn't show up. I mean, you know, things happen all the time. A band member gets sick. You know, it's the person that's supposed to sing. I mean, these things happen all the time at events. And so, you know, you're kind of backstage and, you know, your main singer is not there or someone got stuck in an accident somewhere and is not coming. I mean, it just you know, it happens often. And so we have to think about, okay, what's plan B? And I think also what really helps, and this is what helps me in life, is A, staying calm. B, you know, life is life and things happen. And people understand if you are calm. When there's a problem, I do everything to fix it and I come up with a solution before I ever tell anybody. But sometimes you know, you just have to say, this is what happened and we're going to take care of it, but this is where we are. And, you know, you have to be honest with people because things happen in life and, you know, they are events. Like people are going to be just fine. It's okay. And, and it's kind of has to be the attitude of like, you can't control everything in life. So when you're in it and when you're there, you know, kind of like with my attack, but the worst things are the calmer I get funny enough. So I just, you know, try to think through whatever that hiccup is. I also will just say, like, this might sound like the worst nightmare for some people listening to what, like, having to problem solve. That they're like, this is yeah. this is not the career for me. Yeah. This is as you're talking about this. I'm like, I live for this at events. Like, I am. My brain is like set to channel solutions when the I mean, stakes the are when we had like right. A I mean, it was like, I mean, you know, things happen. We did a live broadcast for our event this year. So we were simultaneously broadcasting to 2,000 people online yeah. and running our event. And the internet and the entire building went down. Yeah. And was day one. And then day two, we had my book launch. And an hour before, we had an hour to turn the room. The fire alarm was pulled. Yeah. And the fire trucks were there. And we were not allowed back. Like, it was stuff like this. And you just, you become so clear on what's important and what is not. And what you can control and what you can't. And you're right. You either default to calm or you're like off the planet. I mean, you know, every, it's happening to everybody there. So you say, okay, right. this is what's happening. We're going to pass everybody drinks outside. 
We're going to get the music outside. We're going to have like a, you know, a party in the, in the, you know, in the parking lot until we're done. Like you have to come up. People are understanding, you know, you just think about how to flip it because mm-hmm. it's always a good story, you know? Yeah. So you just have to try to make everybody comfortable and keep them informed in some way and you just move on, you know, what can you do? So I know that we either have like official event planners or unofficial event planners or people who are just like hosting dinner parties in mm-hmm. the realm of their own lives, uh, listening to listening to this episode today. What for them, what makes an amazing event? What are the constituents of a like incredible time? So I think it it's either, you know, small or big. I always think about the client's experience meaning their client's experience, right? So if you're my client, I want to think about every single person that's coming to your event from the second they walk in the door to the second they leave, what is their experience? And that may take a year to plan, right? So, you know, where are they putting, and it's really basic things because I always say practical is beautiful. You know, you can have amazing flowers and a great chef, but, you know, if people don't get a drink or they can't find a place to put their coat, like these are just little things that they kind of remember, even if it's at your home. So I have like, I always have a rack when I entertain and I put hangers on it and I leave it in the front so that people don't have to like find a place to put their coat. It's just easy. You know, there's either a waiter with with drinks when they walk in or there's trays of things that I've pre-made because it takes the pressure off of people and bars and situations and somehow holding something for people makes them feel more secure. So it's really thinking about if you've got a gorgeous table, but your centerpieces are so high that you can't see the person across from you, it's not really going to work. So I think about what works and the small little details are really the things that make the event great because they will leave thinking about what you've taught them or what the goal of the event is or what they learned instead of saying, I couldn't get a drink, you know, the food ran out, I had, I had to keep my coat with me on the chair because these are the things that people say makes an event bad. They don't, they're not even focused on the content because they've already had like a frustrating time. Yeah. So when you truly think about the experience of walking in the door, step one, step two, step three, when they leave, how are they leaving? Are we getting their coats to them? Are there multiple coat checks so they're not waiting online? Like all of these little details, it really changes the impact haha, of your event. Love it and totally feel that. We could have the best speaker in the world and the comments are, it was hard to find this. The water bottles were lit. Like it's it's absolutely the devil's yep. in the details. Yeah. Yep. And it's it's courteous when you think about it from that perspective. Hospitality. I mean, Absolutely. you know, I do a lot of consulting with hospitality groups because they don't think about the small things that make it a hospitable feeling because it right. is about the service. Right. I love it. I love the work that you are doing. Uh, Jen, there's so many places that we could go. I feel like this is a beautiful place to transition to something I call our impact ingredients. The intention here is that these are rapid fire questions. There is no math or spelling. They're super easy. My first question for you is when you need to cultivate courage at a moment's notice, how do you do that? Gratitude. I think about how lucky I am. I think about how I'm here on this planet how I don't take breathing as a given. And I think, bring it, like you can do this, you've got it. 
but I, 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 I think about gratitude, like what I have and what I've done and how lucky I am. And it, you know, just brings me courage. What's your motivational beverage of choice? Water. What's the biggest oh, non-negotiable? What, what? What's your biggest non-negotiable for you in your life? Lying. Like you won't lie. I want to be I clear. won't lie and I don't accept <laughs> lying. Like I'm a truth seeker and I'm in the moment and I'm very transparent and I need to know the information like right now. And that's kind of, you know, the rules of my office and anywhere else is don't lie to me and don't steal from me. Other than that, we can work it out. I love it. As an entrepreneur, were you born this way or did you learn to become an entrepreneur? It's a really good question. People ask this all the time. I don't know that I would have been me had this attack not happened. It's like part of the fiber of my skin and I can't remove it. But when I think back to my life, I was always selling. I was always making things and selling them. I was always figuring out a way to make money. I mean, I was like the risky business that was having parties in my backyard, charging people to pay for my prom and my dress. I mean, I was always figuring out a way to be independent and to make my own money. And my father was an entrepreneur. So I think I was born this way. Yeah, I'm going to vote for that one. I think that 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 feels right. Last question for you. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? Wow. I think kindness. I really do. I think kindness counts. I think compassion counts. I think there are a lot of people that are misunderstood. I know I was the most judged person in the world because people would look at me and think like, what does she know from suffering? And I would think, you want my life? You take it all because you don't know anything about me. And I think if we had compassion and kindness for other people, knowing that we don't know what might be going on for them, I think things would change in the world. I think that is a beautiful place to end. Jennifer Gilbert, full of wisdom and insight. Where can we send people to follow along with your journey? My Instagram is at Jen Gilbert NYC. Our website is savethedate.com. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm everywhere. And I really love feedback. So I always answer. If anybody wants to DM me or email, I'm, I'm always here. Amazing. You can find all of those links at meganwalker.com forward slash a podcast. Jen, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Bye, everybody. Thank you, honey. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel, and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.